Tonight we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. And it feels to me that we are moving very, very slowly. I had planned for us to finish chapter 2 tonight, but there is such a wealth of interesting revelation in these verses that I decided to break it up into two parts. Next week, we're going to look in detail at the creation of woman, the design of the Lord for marriage and family and all that. But there are several smaller things, if you want to call them that, that require our attention. And when you compare some of these things to the big themes of Scripture, it's like, is that really important? Well, it's in there, so yes, it is important. But there are so many doctrines of Scripture that have their foundations in some of these little phrases that we see here, that we can't just pass by them without drawing them out. And I found that if I was going to try to point all these things out and give a little bit of attention to each one and still save time to discuss marriage and sexuality at the end, just was not going to work. So luckily for us, we're not under a deadline. We can take as long as we need to. And I try to keep it going pretty briskly, but tonight it was... It was the right decision to break it down. So we're going to look in chapter 2 here. We were going to move from the wide angle of chapter 1 that looks over the seven days of creation. And it's going to focus in on the creation of man and the Garden of Eden. And this is one of those passages where there's a lot of stuff in it that makes you cock your head and say, what? (laughs) And there's a lot that we do not know about the things discussed in these verses. But there is plenty that we do know to keep us busy and probably some nice food for thought or dinner table conversation after this is all over. So let's begin just by reading our first verse for tonight. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. All right, so the book of Genesis began with a big cosmic description of creation, days 1 through 7, Kind of viewed at 30,000 feet, right? There was the light and the darkness and the moon and the stars and the earth and the seas and the sky and all that. Very quickly, seven days. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, we have the first use of this structural phrase, these are the generations. You'll remember we talked about this in our first study. The book of Genesis is organized around 11 uses of that phrase. And it's the Hebrew word toledoth, which means generations. In the 10 other places in which it's used, it refers to the generations of a person. It's usually followed by a genealogy. But here it's a little different. We have the generations of the heavens and the earth. And when you see this phrase, these are the generations, the toledoth, it always refers to what comes after it, not before And as I said, usually it's followed by a genealogy. It'll say, these are the generations of Noah, and then it will list Noah's children and their children. And in this case, what we're going to see is the initial generation of Adam and Eve, the very first generation of the very first people. Now, we've already seen the creation of man and woman in chapter 1. Verse 27 says very simply, God created man in his own image. That's that 30,000 feet I was talking about. But in chapter 2, You see the creation of man and woman again, but in much greater detail. Now, this has given rise to the accusation that there are two stories of creation here that were stitched together by the author, but they have no relation to one another. People will say this supposedly shows the development of Hebrew theology. They had a more mythological view of creation, and then they got this more detailed rendition as their religion evolved in chapter 2. And you can see as they transition, and then when they put the book of Genesis, they just slapped it all together, and here we go. I've mentioned before that scholars today, of the Old Testament especially, are fascinated by the discovery of other creation myths from ancient Near Eastern cultures, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Akkadians, those kinds of groups. We've had a a real breakthrough, you could say, in archaeology and in discovering these things. We found all of this literature from all these ancient cultures. Very cool in a way. But whenever there's a new discovery, if you know anything about academics, they get really excited and think that this is going to change the whole thing because this is how they get tenure and write new books. And... They are very excited to take these other cultures' myths and legends, the Epic of Gilgamesh is the the classic one here, and compare and contrast Genesis with those accounts, and even to reinterpret Genesis based on what these other legends say. 
And to be fair, there are some similarities between those stories and the Bible. There's similarities between just about every creation story and the Bible. For example, just about every culture has a flood story of some kind or other. But although the differences between Genesis and the other legends far outweigh the similarities, for example, most of them say that there's these gods killed a monster and then the blood of the monster fell into the dirt and then the blood turned into people and that's where they came from. You can see there's a difference in kind between those two things. One of them is magic and monsters and legends, and the other one is really a very sophisticated theological presentation, which is what we have. And, but Bible scholars believe that because there are some similarities, this undermines the reliability of Genesis. Because they say, well, the guys that wrote this down, they maybe knew about these ancient stories and maybe borrowed from these ancient stories. Therefore, they feel justified in picking apart the text and making what Paul would call confident assertions about things they know nothing about. They say, you can see the seams. You can see where this part ended and this part began and this author started and this author stopped. But in my opinion, if these scholars would use a fraction of the imagination that they use to find parallels between the Bible and the Babylonian legends, they would be able to explain why there's no contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 2. You write big, long books about how this legend that has nothing to do with this one from totally different cultures are really the same story. But then you look at the Bible, which has chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you say, these are totally irreconcilable doesn't make any sense to me. Chapter 2, very simply, is an elaboration of chapter 1. You get the big picture, and then we zoom in, and we have a little more detail. Is that so hard? It's, it's not, but that doesn't sell books. You're given the full story of creation from 30,000 feet. Imagine it's like a movie, like you're, you're watching the sweeping changes coming over the universe, and then it zooms in, and you're, you're back in time a little bit, but it's the same story. And you see what actually happened on day six in detail. Because chapter one just says, God created man. Then chapter two says, let me tell you how God created man. There's no discrepancy there. At least if you have any sense of <laughs> the canon of scripture, which we do. And I, and I really hate giving airtime to ideas like that. Because why, why expose these ideas any more than they already are? But this is why. If you do any research at all into Genesis any research into creation, you will be inundated with this stuff. All these phony ideas from different cultures. Let me tell you, Genesis stands alone. There's no magic, there's no weird unscientific assertions, and there's no contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You've got one chapter giving the big picture, another one giving the details. And even if they were Let's just assume for a second two separate accounts originally. When they were brought together, there's no contradiction between them. You'd think that Moses, or whatever author you care to name, would be smart enough to figure that out. So that's just important for us to know. And as we get farther into Genesis, hopefully I get to bring up that stuff less and less. But that's enough for today. Let's read verses 5 and 6. So the Toledoth, the generations of the heavens and the earth, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. These verses give the setting for the creation of man in verse 7. So verse 4 tells us this is the generations. These are the generations. This is what happened. And then verse 5 and 6, here's where we are. And it very interesting because it tells us what the world was like before sin and before the flood. That's why these are fascinating verses to me because this is a picture of a world that is totally unknown to us. You remember we talked about this at length in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He warns us that people will come who will reject the gospel because they will say, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And that is with a capital U, uniformitarianism. But it's not true. The Bible makes it clear. Things were different in the beginning. And God has intervened to change the very nature of the world itself, most notably at the flood, right? And this is so important for us to know because people say, well, that Old Testament passage in Genesis doesn't line up with what we know today. Well, yeah, all things have changed. That's not a secret in the Bible. We have no experience with what the world was like when it was new and unspoiled. 
So if you're going to read these verses, as some do, and try to dismiss it, ah, it's a legend, because we don't have things like that today. Well, you're missing the point. The point is, this is what it was like before sin, before the curse, before the flood. It's changed since then. It's a lost world. We only know about it, what God has chosen to reveal about it here in Genesis. So what has the Lord revealed about this? It says first that no bush of the field and no small plant of the field was growing yet. The word for bush there is siach in Hebrew. And in the Old Testament, it typically refers to a wild or uncultivated plant. Think of like a, a cactus or something like that. It would be a siach. And then the word for small plant, as the ESV translates it, is esev. Most often this is describing cultivated plants or crops. It's translated a lot of times. So we know from the previous chapter, chapter 1, the Lord has caused grasses to grow, trees to grow on the earth. There is vegetation, but there are two forms of plant life that have not grown yet. There are no crops yet because Adam has not been there to plant them and to harvest them and to cultivate them. Later on, we're going to see in this passage, God will commission Adam to plant the fields and to grow things like wheat or grapes or corn or cotton or whatever it is. And that has not happened yet. And there are also no wild, prickly things that exist outside of man's cultivation. I think this is best understood as a reference to the thorns and thistles with which God is going to curse the earth in chapter 3. So, saying we've got the world, we've got abundant plant life, but we don't have weeds yet because God has not sent these prickly things. And we don't have cultivated crops yet. And this does not necessarily need to mean that there was no such thing as corn yet, but it was uncultivated. It wasn't being planted in rows and harvested as it would be later on. So it's different. The face of the earth looks different. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it says a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. This is an interesting verse as well. I was like a kid in a candy store studying this one because it's just my kind of thing. Because we're not entirely sure how to translate the word that is translated mist here. This is the word aid in Hebrew, just ed, aid. And it's only used twice in the whole Bible. And the difficulty with ancient Hebrew is because it's so old, all that we really have is the Bible. So if we don't have a word used in a lot of places in the Bible, sometimes it's hard for us to know exactly what it means. But there are ways that we can go about that, and that's what I was doing over the last few days, and I had a tons of fun doing that. The other use is in Job 36, 27. And in that verse, it's talking about the water that rises up and condenses in the clouds. So both passages are describing the water rising up. And because that verse in Job talks about the condensation becoming a cloud. It, it was translated mist in this passage, and that's traditionally how it's been understood, that the mist came up, and it was thick, and it was heavy, and it was so wet that it could water the whole earth that you didn't even need rain, because it says God had not sent rain on the earth, which just adds an extra layer of horror to the people when the flood came, right? Because <laughs> God hadn't sent rain yet. He said, well, water's going to fall from the sky. Like, you're crazy. And then water starts to fall from the sky. If you were the first guy to see that, how would you respond? What makes this translation sticky, though, it's not a problem, we're just trying to figure out how properly to understand it, is that in the Septuagint, which if you don't know, this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was written before Christ. It's when the Greek culture had covered the world. There were Greeks that wanted to read the Old Testament. There were Jews that were being raised in cultures that didn't speak Hebrew anymore. For example, even in Jesus' day, they were speaking Aramaic. They weren't speaking Hebrew anymore. So there was a commission to translate it into Greek, and they did. And it's quoted a lot in the New Testament, and there's sometimes differences between the translations because one of them is one language, one is another. Well, when they translated this Hebrew word into Greek here, they translated it by the Greek word pege, which means springs, like a spring that comes up from under the water. So again, it's water coming up, but it's not mist rising up from the ground, you understand? that This is the, the difficulty in the translation. So you could think of it like this. Under the American Great Plains, out in Nebraska, Kansas, those other western states, there's what is called the Ogallala Aquifer. This is, say that five times fast, it's a lot of fun. This is a naturally occurring underground reservoir of water. If you today were to empty the Ogallala Aquifer 
onto the surface of the Earth. It would cover every inch of all 50 states to a depth of one and a half feet. There's that much water underneath the Great Plains, Kansas, Nebraska, North Texas. And that's after the dangerous levels of depletion that have happened over the last century. So right now they're saying, we've got to cool it here because we're actually going to run out of water in this thing. So who knows how much was in it when we began, but it's a lot. Billions of gallons of water are taken out of this thing every year, and it's still going. That's why those parts of the country grow all the wheat, they grow all the corn, and it's so easy there because there's a ton of water in the ground and it's easy to get. So verse 6 could be describing a similar situation worldwide. If you have an NIV in front of you or a New Living Translation, they translate that as springs. So those are your two options. Either the Lord used to send up a worldwide mist that was sufficient to water the whole earth, or there were deep underwater springs that irrigated the vegetation on the whole world. I think that's a very interesting idea for the second one, and I, I don't presume to know any better than the translators of our Bibles. But in Genesis 7 and 8, when you read about the flood, it talks about the fountains of the deep bursting open. These reservoirs of water under the earth breaking open. Remember how it says the Lord separated the waters below from the waters above? So it could be that those springs, the Lord busted them open and they began to flood the earth. And as I said, if you were to open up just that one in the middle of the country, it would cover the whole country. So if the Lord had these all over the world, that could explain where a lot of that water came from. And it also might explain why we do not have springs like that all over the earth today. They both amount to the same thing, really. It's water going up is what that word means. Either that's mist or that's springs. And, of course, both could be true. And it could be that there was so much water under the earth that the dew was just insane. And there was so much of it that it could water the Garden of Eden and everything else. The point is that there's no rain on the earth yet because there is enough water in the earth to cause everything to grow. And whether that's through condensation or irrigation, I don't know. Start a blog and tell us what you think. <laughs> what we have here is a description of a world in potential. There's enough land, there's enough water, everything is out there. All that was needed was for somebody to till the fields and make the flowers grow, right? The world is waiting for God's most special creation. So let's read verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, a living soul, the older translations say. I kind of like that better. We looked at this verse some last week. We were talking about the creation of man and how God made man and woman and made them in his image. And I just want to draw to your attention again how intimate this act of creation is as opposed to when it says, the Lord said, let there be. That's very cool. But here the Lord kneels down in the dirt and begins to form man by his own hands. And he breathed into him the breath of life. And it says that he became, as the ESV renders it, a living creature. That in Hebrew is nefesh chaya. And that word that is weirdly to me translated creature is nefesh. And it comes from the word to breathe, the word breath of life, and then the word living creature. They actually come from the same root word, which is breath. Nefesh in Hebrew, though, is used to describe a living person. Their heart or soul is the word we would use. They would use the word breath metaphorically to describe a person. God gave Adam his very breath. He made him more than just another creature, but a living soul. And I actually, as I said, prefer the older translations here because I think they capture the sense of that a little better. Now let's pause here for a minute and let's wonder, what does it mean to be a living soul? It's very important for us to see this because it does not say that Adam had a living soul, but that he became a living soul. We ourselves are living souls. The Lord fashioned a body and gave it the breath of life and it became a living soul named Adam. Knowing that guards us against two different mistakes we could make. First of all, by affirming that you are a living soul, it prevents us from viewing ourselves as material beings only. We are more than our bodies. We are more than our bodies. 
Now, Paul gives us an example in Galatians 5.17, and it's a negative example, but it makes the point. Hear how he's talking about the difference between the body and the spirit here. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All I want us to see in that is that Paul is drawing a distinction between the spiritual and the physical. What does that remind us? You are not just a body. And that's a very common thing you hear today, even if they're not going to put it in metaphysical terms that way. There, there are atheists who are determinists. A determinist means that everything has been preordained and nothing can change it. Because they say that we are nothing more than chemicals, firing, electrical impulses, atoms, gravity, the forces of nature operating together, working to keep your body alive. That's all that you are. Love, joy, hate, fear, they're just neurological responses to outside stimuli. And there's no such thing as a soul. There's nothing more than what you see right in front of you. There are folks that have said, that if we could map out your genome, if we could map out all of your neurons, we could predict with 100% accuracy how you would respond in any given situation. So I don't need to know your personality, don't need to know your dreams and desires. All I need to know is your chemistry, your electricity, the biology. But listen, guys, that's not how God has created you. You are a living soul. A neurologist might be able to show you what parts of your brain are active when you're feeling certain emotions? You ever watch those videos? They're, they're very cool. Very cool that we've been able to figure that out. But they're powerless to tell you why it works that way. Science is really good at how. It's really bad at why. Well, this is what makes you feel happy. Okay, but why did that fire then? Well, because you were happy. But I thought I only felt happy because the thing fired. And round and round we go. That's the mystery of consciousness, as they say. And if you walk down that road where you're just going to say, all people are is... Chemicals and electricity firing together. You end up in a really dark place. Because that means the person in front of you is not a person. It's not a living soul. It's just a big bundle of science. So what difference does it make how I treat them? This is why the Bible tells us things like deny your flesh and feed your spirit. Or to honor your body. Because you can. Because you're more than just your physical impulses. The Bible can tell you, hey... Deny your flesh. Even that simple command is under attack today. Isn't that weird? Because some folks, I don't want to say scientists like it's one big uniform group, but some folks will tell you, you cannot deny your flesh because all you are is flesh. So anything that you've ever done is flesh. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible tells you to take control. There's more to you than just what you see and feel. Isn't that special? I think most people get that naturally. You, know? you have to be educated into that kind of error, I guess. But there's another error here, too. Knowing that we're a living soul, here's the second thing. We do not believe that the body is evil. This is a very common thing in the early church because they were going into Greco-Roman culture and they were Platonists. They believed in what Plato had taught, which was that the body is an illusion and you, you've got to get to where the spirit and the soul is. And you can see there's a lot of passages and verses that People that believe that could appropriate from Christianity and say, oh, well, your religion is teaching the same thing mine is. But no, this is why we have to understand what the book of Genesis teaches. Folks will say your body is nothing more than a tool you possess. You are trapped within your body, and you've got to learn to live beyond it. You've got to escape from it. That's the Gnostic idea. I always say, if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, that's Gnosticism. You've got to free your mind outside of your body because this body you have is not who you really are. Who you really are is somewhere else. That is absolutely not the Christian understanding. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Your body is not evil. Your body has been corrupted by sin, but so has your soul and your spirit, if you want to put it that way. It's your natural drives and your instincts have gone far beyond their boundaries. That's what the Bible means when it refers to the flesh in a negative way. We get hungry. That's normal. It's good. You should get hungry. But when we allow our hunger to drive the boat and we become gluttonous, that's your flesh out of control. 
But sin, as the Bible makes very clear, can also come from the heart. And it talks about wicked desires. It's not just your flesh gone awry, but inventors of wickedness, the Bible calls it. The body was created before sin. And God declared, remember in Genesis 1, that it was very good. And beyond that, I mean, come on. Jesus Christ took on flesh. He died and rose again in a glorified body, not some ethereal spiritual state. This is why you got the heresy of docetism, which we've talked about before, that Jesus only appeared to have a body. Because if he had a body, well, the body is evil, and then that would be unthinkable for God to have a body. But the apostles and those that knew them were like, uh, no, we knew Jesus. He had a body. That's why you read in 1 John, he's saying things like, that which we have seen and we've heard and we've handled and we've touched and we've talked to. The Lord took on a body. If you downplay your body as somehow, we talk about our body sometimes as like an impediment to who we really want to be. But that leads to some really strange stuff. These ascetic practices that say, if you really want to be spiritual, you've got to harm the body. If you've got to starve yourself, you've got to fast more. You've got to deny any kind of joy, any kind of happiness. And there have been people in the past, and maybe still are, I don't know, that used to beat themselves with whips. They'd take those things that they beat Jesus with at the crucifixion and flagellate themselves. Because they thought, if I can just beat my body down, my soul will grow strong. That is not a godly thing. The body is a good thing. You are not just a soul. You are a living soul. And now there's been a long debate in the church over whether man is composed of two parts or three. This was one of the debates that I thought was the most useless when I was in seminary. I think I see the value a little more now, but you've got the dichotomy, which is the belief that man is a body and a spirit. So you have a physical element and then a psychological or, or spiritual element. And then you've got the trichotomy, which is we are body, soul, and spirit. So you separate the psychological and the spiritual sides in that, that idea. And there are verses that indicate both. They kind of go back and forth, you know. But we need to make sure that when we're having that discussion, we don't miss the big picture. And I think it's especially relevant for us today. Look at how the Lord created Adam. He formed his body, breathed in him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. However you want to break it down in theory, the Bible teaches the essential unity of a human being. We are not bodies that have a soul. We are not souls that have a body. We are living souls. We are one thing, not many things. The Lord did not have a store of souls waiting for bodies. Y'all just calm down. We're going to do a raffle and see who gets to go first. Okay, Adam, you're up first. The Lord animated the body he created in that moment. And in that moment, it became a living soul named Adam. It's an error to denigrate the body, and it's an error to downplay the soul or the spirit, because God has made us to be a unity. This is why I think there's not a lot of consistency in the Bible regarding to how it describes the different parts, you know? Sometimes it'll say soul, sometimes it'll say spirit, sometimes it says soul and spirit, sometimes when it says flesh, it only means physical, sometimes when it says flesh, it's something spiritual. It's tough to make sharp distinctions. And you know why I think that is? Because God intended for the material and the spiritual to be one. We can even see this through neurology, right? When I'm talking about how you can see the electrical patterns of the brain. It's very difficult to tell when you're looking at that. Where does the physical end and the spiritual begin? Where does mind start and body stop? Because it's all tied up in your brain. I think it's probably a poor question. Because God made us to have bodies and souls. It's all tied together. So it's perfectly acceptable to discuss them separately. The Bible does this a lot because this is the world that we live in. But we need not to make too much of those distinctions. Consider what salvation entails. When we die, we see in Scripture that the souls of the dead are carried away either to a place of torment or, as Paul says it, to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. But we are not looking forward after death to disembodied bliss in heaven. That's, that's nirvana. That's Hinduism and Buddhism. That someday you are just going to be a drop in the ocean of God. And you're just going to be eternal bliss forever. 
The Bible says that even in heaven, first of all, you'll have spiritual bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 says that. But what are we waiting for? We're not waiting for heaven, although we are. We're really waiting for not just heaven, but resurrection, right? That's the goal. That's what we're looking for. I'm going to read a, a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 15, if you'd like to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54. Just listen to this. I, I love it. So cool. Keeping in mind what we're talking about here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is the unnatural separation of the body from the soul. This is a state that God never intended. We're so used to it, right? We just live in a world full of death. And we just get used to that. And we say, well, that's just the way things are. Imagine what it would have been like for Adam to consider the thought of his soul being ripped from his body. That's why we're looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies. And when we shall be whole and complete again, the way God made us, you're not just going to be floating around in heaven somewhere and your legs have turned into like a little flowy smoke-looking thing and you're Casper the friendly ghost floating around heaven. The Lord is going to resurrect your body, glorify it, and man, is there ever going to be anything that feels better than your sanctified spirit being reunited with your glorified body forever and ever with Jesus. That's the way God made us. Now, why does this matter? Because there today, let's make this real practical, there is a whole group of people today who claim that they were born into the wrong body. That this body in which I'm born into, this is not who I really am. What you were born with is not who you really are. I'm, of course, referring to the transgender movement. That's what they say, right? I, I know I'm in a man's body, but I'm really, my spirit, my soul is female, and there was a mistake somewhere, and so this is wrong. It's got to be fixed. They say a person is not their body, and they'll look down on folks that, hold to what they call biological determinism, meaning you're saying that the way I'm born in my body is who I have to be? No, no, I'm merely contained by my body. It's really, it's a very twisted version of Gnosticism in a way. I've got to escape from this body that I'm stuck in. It's a tragic thing. Can you imagine waking up every day and feeling like you were born in the wrong body? God never intended you to feel that way. That's a very terrible thing. And that's why folks that, that are in this, this world the rate of suicide and depression is just astronomical, something like 40%, if I'm not mistaken. And it leads to the mutilation of the body because they're pursuing what they believe to be their true selves. But as Christians, we don't believe that that's possible. Psalm 139.14 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Jeremiah says that the Lord knit you together in your mother's womb. He handcrafted you. And this is not one of those, shake the Bible in your face and throw it at you. Ha, see, you're wrong. This, is, this would be the best news that someone like this could ever hear. Because you know what we do? And I, I just, I, I feel so terrible for those that have had to deal with this. Somebody who feels like I, I was a woman born in a man's body or a man born in a woman's body. They spend their whole life feeling weird, feeling like freaks, feeling unloved and, and like they don't belong. Then they go to their friends and they say, I think I might be a man born in a woman's body. And all their friends go, that's so great. That's so wonderful. Let's get you some new clothes. Let's pick out a new name. Let's, let's get you signed up for this medication. What have you just done for that person? You just came and said, I think that I might have been a freak born in the wrong body. And all your friends say, yes, you are. No, 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 we've got to affirm them. No, you don't, you, you're not affirming them. You're telling them that you are wrong, that the way you are made is wrong. It's incorrect. We've got to fix it. And what happens is that hole in their heart is never being fixed, so they make all these changes to their body and to the, the chemicals of their body, and then finally they wake up one day and realize I'm still the same miserable lost person that I ever was, except now I've destroyed this body that I'm in, and it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to self-destruction at that point. 
It is more loving to come to somebody and say, no, you're not. God made you wonderfully, fearfully, beautifully. God made you this way on purpose. I love you like this. That is the most Christian thing to do for somebody like that. And we believe that because of the book of Genesis. And it can take a long time for someone to get over that whole thing. But we're there to be patient and loving and kind and to weep with them and to wrap our arms around them and not be icky and weirded out by them. Because Jesus has sent us out to tell them, no, God didn't make you that way. The Lord loves you and you've been lied to by the devil who hates you and wants to destroy you. God made us living souls. Our bodies are broken by sin, and so is your soul. If you're a more intellectual type, you're going to hate on the body. If you're a more physical, go get him, get her done kind of guy, you're going to hate on the soul. But Jesus came in the flesh to save not just the soul, but the body too. When we understand how Adam was made, you understand the beauty of God's design. It keeps you from either denying the existence of the soul or from denying the importance of the body. You are a unity. Your body and your soul belong together. One is incomplete without the other. Why do you think it says that people who had died and went to, as it was called, Abraham's bosom, were being comforted there? Because that's not how God made us to be. Souls separated from our bodies. Don't worry, Messiah is going to come and he's going to make everything all right. And we're looking forward to the resurrection when our souls will be sanctified and our bodies will be glorified. Isn't that awesome? That's so much better than the stuff the world comes up with, isn't it? But no, this is just some legend somebody made up a few thousand years ago. <laughs> Let's read verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now we see where this first man is to be placed. And it says that God planted a garden. That's just a cool little sentence that's stuck there right in our Bibles. God planted a garden. By the way, I haven't drawn this out yet, but I need to. He's called, as you see, the Lord God here and throughout this passage too. Verse 4 is the first place we find the word Lord or Jehovah, Yahweh, the, the name of God. That's the first place you see it in the Bible. So something to note there. But the Lord God planted a garden in a place called Eden. Little side note, Eden was not the name of the garden. The garden was in Eden. So it's perfectly acceptable to call it the Garden of Eden. I just thought that was interesting. Eden in Hebrew is related to the word for delight. I think it's an appropriate name, don't you think? Adam found himself in a delightful place after his creation. Now remember, at this point, as we've already read, there is no cultivated ground, but the first one to cultivate the ground is the Lord. He plants a garden with every beautiful tree, every tree that bears good fruit. Botanical gardens sound, at least to my average male ears, like the most boring place you could visit outside of maybe the Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> but if you've ever been to one, and by the time I finally made it to one, I was mature enough to get over myself, <laughs> it's astonishing what a well-tended garden looks like, isn't it? Jungles and forests, they've got their own wild grandeur, right? I love looking at pictures of just the, the untamed woods or the mountains or whatever, but Flowers and trees and vines, they find their true potential in gardens cultivated by men. That's what God told us to do. I mean, it's, it's really true. The flowers grow bigger. The trees can last longer. Everything just looks nicer. Can you only imagine what a garden planted by God would have looked like? And in this garden, we have two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are not given as much detail as I would like about these two trees, but we know enough. The Lord had imbued these trees with certain power, it seems. Unique thing that he never did again. But partaking of the fruit of one of them would bring changes to the one who ate from it. And we will see those changes, unfortunately, as we get into the next chapter. And so I'm not going to spend too much time diving into these trees because we will get back into it. But let's just list basically what we know now. The tree of life seems to have been a tree that would extend the life of the person who ate it. 
That is why, after Adam and Eve sin, God is going to drive them out of the garden because he says, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. The implication here, which is very interesting to think about, is that Adam and Eve were not naturally immortal on their own, but they could be indefinitely sustained by the life-giving power of God. Very important. The way that God sentenced them to death was he denied them access to the tree of life. Understanding the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a little more tricky, and I am in some ways going to punt until a few weeks later because I, I need more time to think this through. But after Adam and Eve eat of it in Genesis 3.22, the Lord is going to say, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Something changed in Adam and Eve when they ate that fruit. And the tree, of course, represents the decision to self-determine, that I'm going to know for myself rather than submit to the wisdom of God. I want to know. You could call this the tree of unbridled imagination. Immediately after eating it, Adam and Eve will recognize their nakedness and be ashamed of it. And what, part of what makes it so difficult is it's hard to even imagine what it's like apart from that kind of knowledge. But this is how we were initially created. And we will look at this, as I said, in much greater detail in a few weeks here. Before we move on, I want to draw out one more thing about the Garden of Eden, that it was paradise, but it was not heaven. Eden was idyllic, but it was not fairyland. <laughs> God had work for Adam to do, as we will see. And there's no reason to assume here that Adam and Eve were in this state of constant perpetual ecstasy here. And we had to write a paper back in college about if Adam had fallen out of a tree and bumped his head, would he have felt pain in the Garden of Eden? Uh, I have no reason to assume that he wouldn't, but there would have been a divine remedy to that hurt. And I'm pretty sure that our great-great-great-great-grandparents were much more capable and clever than we are. And I think that kind of speculation is mostly fruitless. But I think it's important for us to realize that this was not heaven. This was this earth that you are standing on right now. This was the world that God had made. It was the ideal, but it was not harps and halos. And the reason I want to draw that out is because in a few chapters or a few verses, really, there's going to be a serpent in the garden. Well, wait a minute. What's going on here? Remember, this is not God's presence. God would come here and his presence would be there, but this was the world that God had made. And I think that there's a lot that we don't know, as I said, but just wanted to draw that out. But for now, let's go on to the next few verses here. Verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. Bdellium was, uh, it was used to make perfume. It was a resin from trees. Frankincense, if I'm not mistaken, is a similar kind of substance. And an onyx stone is a kind of gem. The name of the second river is the Gihon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So you get a little sense of the geography here. The Garden of Eden served as the headwaters for four different rivers that went out into the earth. Going back to what we talked about before, some have speculated that the mist or the springs that we discussed earlier was somehow related to these rivers because, remember, it's the waters rising up. I think one translation has streams. I don't remember which one. That you know, The Nile River overflows its banks every year, and that's how the land gets watered. Maybe it was something similar to that. Because uh, there's an Akkadian word. Akkadian was a a uh, sister language to Hebrew, kind of how Spanish and Portuguese are very close to one another. So studying Akkadian sometimes helped us understand Hebrew. They had a word, Eid, which means river. And you remember the word for mist was aid. So some people have said maybe they're related. I don't think it's quite as persuasive, but if there is one translation, as I said, that puts streams, if I'm not mistaken, instead of mist. So that's why that is. In any case, there are four rivers here, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And I think it's interesting to try and figure out where these rivers were, because we do not know of any contemporary river named the Pishon. But it says it flowed around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. Havilah, as we're going to see in chapter 10, was a descendant of Cush. And this is the same trouble we have with the river Gihon. We also don't know where that one was. Because it says the Gihon flowed around the land of Cush. So where is Cush? Typically in the Bible, when you read Cush, it's referring to Ethiopia. That's down in Africa. 
But in the book of Genesis, it says that Cush's descendants settled in what is modern-day Arabia. And again, this is Genesis, so over time they spread out, and the descendants of Cush made their way down to Africa. So that's probably what we're talking about here. We can't be certain, and it, I suppose, in the end doesn't really matter, but I still would like to understand it. The Tigris and the Euphrates are much easier to identify. The Tigris is the famous river of the Assyrians, and the Euphrates was the river of Babylon. Those two empires grew up because they were right on the banks of those rivers, and so they had access to water. They could not only water their crops, but they could travel, and they could move their armies, and you understand. Now, those rivers today, they run more or less parallel to each other near the Iran-Iraq border. This is why the Iraqi people firmly believe that the Garden of Eden was originally in Iraq because you've got the two rivers up here and then those two rivers would have been down here somewhere and Iraq is right in the middle. We cannot be certain. Saddam Hussein thought that was a pretty cool thing and thought it made him king of the world, but so much for that idea. The flood, remember, wiped out the Garden of Eden. There is no Garden of Eden left. And it's also very possible that it redirected these rivers. Right? You've got a huge flood covering the whole world. Things are not going to stay looking the same way. So who knows what the region was like at this point. But a very interesting note is that the author, probably Moses, says that the gold of that land is good. Not that it was good. It says that it is good. So either Moses or whatever tradition he was pulling from, as I said, there's no reason to assume Moses wasn't pulling from some of the traditions under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But whoever... Whoever wrote this, probably Moses, believed he knew where Eden had been. He said, oh, it's around the land of Havilah. Oh, yeah, the gold is great out there. So perhaps it was in Iraq. It really doesn't matter. That wouldn't be significant, even if we knew that for the case. But we do know that the cradle of world civilization was in Mesopotamia, this area that's being described. And that just fits with what we know from the scripture, right? If the Bible says that the Lord first put people here, and we know from history outside of the scripture that that's where civilization began. That just kind of makes sense. So it's difficult to know for certain, but it sure is fun to think about. Verse 15. I told you there'd be a lot of these little things. I didn't want to just skip over them. They're, they're kind of fun. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, underline it, work it and keep it. So now we see why God placed Adam in the garden. He's to be God's gardener, to take care of the Garden of Eden, to maintain it and beautify it. And the Lord gets him started. He makes this beautiful grove to grow, but it's up to him to work it and keep it. Two things there, work and keep. Let's look at these in turn. First, he was to work the garden. And it's pretty easy to assume what that work would have been like. Adam would have been pruning back the excess growth. Would have been designing creative ways to display the plants there. Maybe he put in a picnic area. I don't know. Very interesting to me because remember, this is paradise. It's not heaven. The trees were going to grow. The grass would need to be cut. The vines would need to be dressed and pruned. There's no thorns or weeds yet, but in one sense, a weed is just a plant growing somewhere you don't want it to be growing. So that's what Adam's got to deal with. He also would have had to be cultivating food for himself and his family to eat as well. They would have been eating from the trees, but as the Lord said, eventually he's going to send them out to cultivate fields and crops. Have you ever seen how an artist can take those big bushy bonsai trees from Japan? And what do they do? They take their shears and they just start hacking off big branches. And at first you go, no, don't, you're ruining it. What have you done? But by the time it's done, that little tree with all of its cool little twists and turns and the way that the branches grow, it's been enhanced. It's not been destroyed. The gardener comes in with his shears and cuts it up and you think, no, don't mess with it. How could you, you're just going to ruin it. And then it's been made that much better. That's what God was sending Adam out to do. This, this is the garden I've made. I want to see what you can do with this, Adam. Now at first, maybe he wouldn't have been that great at it. You ever go out to trim your bushes and you make a mistake? Well, I guess we're cutting them down to the ground this week. But he certainly would have had enough time to figure it out. But Adam was not just automatically great at everything. The Lord sent him out. Go work the garden. Go learn how to do this. Go figure it out. And secondly, he was to keep it. Now, this is interesting. The Hebrew word there is shamar, and it is translated in a lot of places to guard or to protect. Interesting. It says, go work the garden and protect the garden. Now, this is paradise. What is Adam supposed to guard the Garden of Eden from? I think there's a few things to consider. 
First of all, remember last week we read how he was to go out and subdue the world? And we talked about it's not that he had armies to conquer. It was just go and stake your claim that I've given to you on the world. So probably something like that. It's not so much that he's got to fight for the garden, but it's God's way of telling him, take responsibility for the garden. You also can consider the fact Satan is going to be mounting assaults on the Garden of Eden. So Adam needed to be prepared for whatever the devil was going to throw at him. And the devil shows up and Adam failed to keep the garden, didn't he? Thanks a lot, Adam. <laughs> and if we really want to get speculative here, let's imagine that Adam and Eve passed that first test. Now they've got children and they're spreading out over the whole face of the earth like they were supposed to. Satan is tempting the children of Adam and Eve, but they're passing the test, but he finally tempts one child of Adam to sin. And then that child leads away a contingent of rebels. Whose responsibility would it have been to protect what God had made against sinful man? That would have been Adam's job. So the charge to keep it would have taken on a whole new meaning. But as I said, these are all what ifs. Whatever it meant, Adam did not keep the garden and he lost his opportunity to remain there. A little lesson we learned from this. Work is not part of the curse. God did not force us to work as punishment for our sins. We were to be working from the beginning. Remember what we said last week? The Lord created the world as one big workshop for humanity. Here's a big, beautiful world. Go out and accomplish things. Go make something of this world. And that can be different for each person. Adam was a gardener. That's what God sent him to do. But we know that his two sons, Cain and Abel, had different aptitudes. Cain worked the ground like his father. Abel was more into the animals. He loved them and he wanted to tend the flocks. And that's what he did. And I mean, apart from sin, there probably would have been some who stayed to work in the garden. There were some who maybe would have gone to plant out new gardens or discover amazing things or climb the biggest mountains or build a boat and sail across the sea. The Lord sent us out to work. Go work at something. All that sin did was to make work more difficult and to sometimes make it fruitless. The Lord said, Adam, you're still going to have to work, but it's not going to happen for you every time now. Just as how women still bear children, but as a result of the curse, the process is more painful. It's a similar thing for Adam. That does not make work evil. It's still part of who we are. Paul would write to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Laziness is a sin, my friends. And we as a society are addicted to leisure, are we not? But the thing is, haven't you found that being lazy and unproductive is just not satisfying? You wake up late, you watch a bunch of TV, you eat a bunch of junk, you wear sweatpants all day, and you stay up into the wee hours of the morning playing games on your phone. That might be fun once. Now it's Tuesday and you're sick of it. Cat will tell you, I'll pace around the house. I've got to get out and do something. <laughs> when we worked at the at church in Lynchburg, we had 19 acres, and I'd work in the office, and I just would have times I'm like, I've had it, I'm going into the woods. <laughs> To do what? I don't know. Just to be out in the woods. I needed to get out and walk and sweat and move. And That's because the Lord made us to be that way. The Lord intended us to work and to work hard. So I exhort you guys, even in the things that are not your job, the things that you do for fun, find a way to work at it and do it well. And you might be stuck in a job you hate. I know how that feels. That's part of the curse and it's no fun. But just think about this. When the Lord creates a new heaven and a new earth, there will be a brand new, non-cursed world for you to explore and enjoy. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I didn't have to work so hard at this job because I have no energy left to do the things that I love? Guess what? Hold on. Just hold on, my friend. That day is coming where the Lord is just going to turn you loose and say, no more curse. Here's a new world. Have at it. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Well, coming to the last section now, let's read verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God creates Adam, plants the Garden of Eden, and places him in it. He gives him the responsibility to tend the garden, and then he says these words to him. This is what is known as the Adamic covenant in Scripture, the covenant of Adam. God is establishing the relationship between Adam and himself. There will be many other important covenants in the Bible, but this was the first one. A covenant is an agreement between two people, for our purposes, between man and God, with blessings and curses attached to it. You're familiar with the covenant God made with Israel, that he would bless them and he'd be their God if they obeyed him, but curse them if they disobeyed and rebelled. This here is a similar arrangement, even though in these verses it does not specifically refer to it as a covenant. But in Hosea 6-7, the Lord says that Israel, like Adam, transgressed the covenant. So as far as God was concerned, there was a covenant between him and Adam. The Lord began by offering blessings and purpose to Adam. He was given the Garden of Eden in which to live, permission to eat of the bounty of the trees, including the tree of life, I might add. So there's the added blessing of prolonged life. And Adam's responsibility was to work and keep the garden and to abstain from the tree of knowledge. If Adam were to transgress that covenant, the Lord said in Hebrew, muth tamuth, which means dying, you will die. We translate it, you will surely die. But it says, dying, you will die. This is what's called a cognate accusative in Hebrew. What they would do here is they would say, I have loved you with everlasting love, or dying, you shall die. That was the way that they spoke. And while on the day that he ate of the fruit, Adam did not die physically, he began that process of dying. So really, in a literal sense, dying, he did die. And this was the first way that God established for man to relate to him. We'll see as we go through the Bible, God will adjust the relationship at different junctures. He would establish new covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and, of course, eventually in Jesus Christ. These were not new ways of salvation. Salvation is and only ever has been by faith. But the Lord would use these covenants, these relationships, to slow the descent of humanity into sin and to guide them to his son Jesus, who would someday come and conquer death by his own resurrection. And that's the final lesson we learn from this passage today. It said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Death is not a natural part of life. Death is an enemy. It was the danger lurking around the corner that God warned us about. The Lord only ever intended us for us to have life by his grace, to enjoy his creation without reservation and without fear. But man sinned, Adam sinned, Eve sinned, and we all did. And because of that, we all die. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 again. You were not in the Garden of Eden, but you're guilty of the same sin. You've chosen to live apart from God. You've brought pain into his world. And you are incapable of making the change yourself. And the Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 There is a price. And that price must be paid. You will die as surely as I will die. And as surely as our generation will pass away and be forgotten by the next, we're all going to die. Look at how God made the world. We've discussed it tonight. How wonderful it was. But it's a lost world. It's lost because of our sin. And all that remains for us now is death, the separation of the soul and the body. Not only that, but separation from the God who made us. That's why God had to become a man. To partake in our flesh so that he could serve as an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus Christ accepted his own death, also in a garden, when he said, not my will, but yours be done. And the very next day, he was nailed, of all things, to a tree by the very same people he had formed by his own hands and his own image. The Lord God experienced death for us. But come on, death couldn't hold the one that made heaven and earth. He came out of that grave on the third day, and it says he led captivity captive. He led a train of liberated souls from the grave and for all who believe in him, he's begun the process of regenerating your souls. And one day you're going to be separated from that sinful body and sanctified in his presence. And then one day he's going to glorify your body, bring it all back together with a new heaven and a new earth. And as magnificent as the Garden of Eden was, it's not going to hold a candle to the new world that God is going to create. We were never able to taste 
the fruit of the tree of life. But do you know what John saw in the book of Revelation? Revelation 22, these are the first five verses. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. He's saying, when I saw heaven, the tree of life was there. The Lord is saving it for when we're ready for it. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. When we study the Garden of Eden, your heart gets filled up with a longing for that world that you never got to see. You never got to live there. You never get to see. Half of what we said tonight was... I don't know. It's too wonderful for us to even think about. But for all those who have repented at the feet of Jesus and placed your faith in his work on the cross, he's promised you something better. There's a hope not of paradise, but of heaven, a new heaven and a new earth and all of eternity to enjoy it.